morning, everyone. It's so good to be here with you. Last week, we heard from Pastor Carlene about the incredible faith of Abraham and our hope, which is the steadfast anchor of the soul. We saw the all-important fact that Abraham's blessing was far greater than he expected because through him, God wanted to bless not only him, but all the nations. Now, as we come to our passage here in verses 1 through 3, we begin a new section focused on the exposition of the superior access to God that comes through Jesus. Turn with me now to Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3. King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name in the first place means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Verses 1 through 3 are all about this mysterious character named Melchizedek. He's mysterious because he's scarcely mentioned in the Bible at all. Aside from a few passages, the Bible is silent regarding this man. Melchizedek first comes on the scene in Genesis 14, 18-20. After Abraham has defeated multiple kings, he seemingly randomly runs into Melchizedek and is enamored by how close this man is to God. Melchizedek resembles God, and you can sense that Abraham is just encountering a mirror of the, of the very glory of God himself in the flesh. Then Melchizedek blesses Abraham abundantly, and Abraham receives more of the promised blessing that Yahweh made to him. In the excitement and devotion of his encounter, Abraham then gives back to Melchizedek one-tenth of all he has. Abraham could not help but respond in this way, because Melchizedek himself the man himself was compelling. Why? Because he resembled the closeness to the God Most High. It was his relationship to God. Now Genesis 14, 18 through 20, sorry, is placed interestingly in Abraham's story. When Abraham encounters Melchizedek, he is still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise God has made to him in Genesis 11. And Genesis 11, of course, reads, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. When Abraham encountered Melchizedek, he had received a large promise beforehand, gained more wealth, and he had defeated his enemies. Great blessings had come to fruition already, but God had even greater things in store for him. How did Abraham continue pressing forward then? His identity was derived not from his status on earth, but by his relationship with Yahweh in heaven. When reading the first three verses of Hebrews 7, I was struck first by what the author says about who Melchizedek is and what he is without. Melchizedek is of Salem. He is priest of the Most High God. He is king of righteousness. He is king of peace. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy. He neither has a beginning of days nor end of life. Then the big reveal comes. He resembles the Son of God, who remains a priest forever. Melchizedek is both priest and king, like Jesus. There are two features to the title of Son of God I think are important for this section that are represented elsewhere, particularly in the Gospels. 
The first is Jesus, the Son of God, is one who has personal intimacy with the Father. And the second is Jesus, the Son of God, is one whose origin is derived and in God. Melchizedek's identity and Abraham's perseverance toward his promise is enabled by their personal intimacy with the Father and their origin found in God. They were born of God. Melchizedek's priesthood seems to be attached more clearly to his identity and character rather than to duty, obligation, or earthly status. His priesthood is derived from eternity and not from earth. You know, Colleen said something last week that I'd like to to emphasize here. She said, she said these words, what God can put in us is far greater than anything we can manufacture or find on our own. My guess is that most of us have gone through some form of what Abraham went through. We have witnessed God. We've seen his goodness. We've received a promise from him and even a blessing, but we are still waiting for the greater fulfillment of his presence in our lives. In the waiting, it's easy to imagine that God is not present. Most of us have had our expectations of what God's promises would look like thwarted and our hope then broken. Or we have had the panic and fear that rears its ugly head when our, when our plans fall through and our sober calculations about how to fix our crisis come up short. Maybe, maybe you had hoped in your 401k and now it's lost. Maybe you had hoped that your family would be healed and now you're left with only your wounds. Maybe you had hoped that person you were dating was the one. Maybe you had hoped you would stop living paycheck to paycheck at this point in your life, but you can't see your way out now. Maybe you had hoped for greater justice in the world, or maybe you had hoped you'd overcome a particular sin by now. Whatever it may be for you, many of us feel like we're left with the death of the promise once imagined, and the agony of knowing that there should be more to life than this. I was told that I would get more. There is more for you and far greater things than you can even imagine are on the horizon. I promise you that. While we wait for the promise, God is calling us deeper into relationship with him. We are born from above. We are children of God. We've been saved by the hand of our enemies of sin and death. This is our foundation. No matter our sufferings or failings, we have a priest king who is with us. Our identity is not primarily defined by our earthly origin, status, or career, but by our relationship to the Father. So let us draw near and remain in the love of Christ, because if we remain in Christ, we will bear an abundance of fruit and receive a peace that surpasses all understanding. So while we wait, let us sing praise to God for what he has already done in our lives, and humbly allow the Spirit to deepen our beloved identity in Christ by remaining in his word, his church and his love. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person who likes to know what's going on in my day. I can be flexible, but I like having a plan, and I like being able to expect what's coming next. I'm sure some of you can relate. So when God told me that my sermon was going to be about the unexpectedness of Christ, I had to laugh a little bit. In these next verses, the author of Hebrews drives home just how unexpected Melchizedek and Christ really are. Melchizedek upends things that Abraham thought to take for granted. So this passage challenges us to look for ways that Jesus changes our own expectations. So let's read Hebrews 7, verses 4 through 10. Talking about Melchizedek. 
See how great he is. Even Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people, that is, from their kindred, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not belong to their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal, in the other by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I want to focus in on two ways that Melchizedek challenges Abraham's expectations of authority, priesthood, and status. In Abraham's time, it was customary to introduce yourself with a list of predecessors that would indicate your tribe and therefore your status. If you were born to a strong or well-known family line, you carried the authority of that lineage. But when Abraham meets Melchizedek, there is no mention of his family. None of the expected markers of status that would have indicated that Melchizedek was above Abraham. And make no mistake, he does hold authority over Abraham. Fresh from battle, Abraham gives Melchizedek the best tenth of his spoils. He allows himself to be blessed by a man he just met with no family lineage to speak of. But for some reason, Melchizedek doesn't need to prove his authority. Even without the usual expected indicators, Abraham recognizes that this man is something special. In what ways do we fail to recognize Jesus' authority over our lives when it looks different than what we expect? When we want a conqueror, do we listen to his still small voice? When we want a shoulder to lean on, do we find it easier to ignore the convicting truth of Christ? This isn't the only way that Melchizedek is unexpected. The writer of Hebrews also notes his lack of connection to the Levitical priesthood. In Israel, there was a well-defined system of religious observance. The people would bring animal sacrifices to the tabernacle, where priests would offer them in intercession for their sins. Then the priests, all members of the tribe of Levi, would be fed with the sacrificial meat. Priesthood was no joke. There was an entire tribe of men who dedicated their lives to interceding for the people of God, training their sons to serve in the tabernacle, performing holy rituals, and living off the communal goodwill of the other tribes. Ties to the priests of Levi were part of God's law for Israel. Ties to anyone else were not. So why does Abraham give a tithe to Melchizedek in these verses? In a similar fashion to his lack of lineage, Though Melchizedek doesn't possess the qualifications of a traditional priest, his priestly authority still shines through to Abraham. The unexpected reality of Melchizedek as a non-Levitical priest mirrors the unexpected life of Christ. Nobody thought the Messiah, the Savior of humanity, come to end injustice and topple kingdoms, would look like a baby born out of wedlock in a manger. Nobody thought that the king they had waited for would be captured and killed brutally alongside convicted criminals. Christ's entire life was unexpected, yet so often it's easier for us to box him into our own tidy parameters. I'll listen, we say, if you just help me with this, or 
I know you want me to do something, but it just doesn't fit my plans right now. It doesn't fit my expectations. So what does this change practically for us? A large part of this passage is about tithing, so I want to end on that. The author is making a distinction here between the Old Covenant and the New. Under the Old System, the people of God tithed in order to support human priests who devoted their time and energy to intercession. But under our New Covenant and under Christ, we tithe for a far different reason. Now we give an awe of an eternal priest whose intercession was so powerful an act that it washes us clean of every stain. Of course, tithing is still practical for the church. Don't forget to show your pastors, programs, and missionaries some love. But our motivation has been drastically altered. From obligatory to voluntary, from duty to awe. Just as Melchizedek challenged and changed Abraham's expectations, so too are our own expectations shaped and reshaped in Christ. A reading from Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest, arising according to the order of Melchizedek, rather than one according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It is even more obvious when another priest arises, resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest, not through a great legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There is, on the one hand, the abrogation of an earlier commandment, because it was weak and ineffectual. For the law made nothing perfect. There is, on the other hand, the introduction of a better hope through which we approach God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Through Christ's perfect life, sacrifice, and resurrection, we now get to live in this better hope and experience a close relationship with God. As Ryan noted, this whole passage is steeped in Jewish tradition. And we see in these verses how the Levitical law was not able to be fully effective. These laws were meant to make God's people holy and acceptable in God's sight. But verses 18 through 19 show us the repeal of the old law that did not work for the people of God to fully achieve perfection. We are then reminded of the better hope we have in Jesus the only one through whom perfection could be attained. The writer of Hebrews was talking to a community of believers who were weighing the option of returning to Judaism. Now we can only imagine how the familiarity with the old law might have seemed easier for early followers of Christ. In these verses, the writer goes to great lengths to show how Jesus' perfect sacrifice 
was and is better than the Levitical priesthood and their sacrificial laws, demonstrating that the new law and new hope we have in Christ is better than any other attempts at holiness and perfection. Jesus is the only perfect kingly priest and sacrifice. Because of this, Christ provides a better hope than any religious system could provide. I've been a follower of Christ for many years and understand the temptation to rely on the religious system of the church more so than relying on Jesus. When I was a student in youth group, I experienced many sweet moments of discovering that adventures with Jesus were so much more than my church attendance record. Sometimes we move toward an easier route by going through the motions of religion rather than engaging in a relationship with God. But through this passage, we are reminded that life in Christ is so much better. The writer of Hebrews reminded the people of God how Jesus is the only perfect one when considering the long line of Jewish priestly tradition, and particularly when considering the priestly king, Melchizedek. Jesus is better than any priest or pastor or church or any religious system we could create. Jesus is the only perfect one, our better hope. Hello church, it's so great to be with you today. Something I've realized about myself is how imaginative I can be. My mind can just run rampant sometimes, especially when I'm reading. This can often be distracting, but in this case, it was helpful. I don't know if it's the amount of crime podcasts I've listened to this past year, or the fact that this passage talks about the law, but for some reason, when I read through these verses, I felt like I was in a courtroom, sitting in the jury section, hearing the closing argument of the defense attorney who was defending Jesus as the better high priest. They had already given the history, the evidence, and you could tell that they knew the jury needed just one more bout of convincing. When I read it in that way, the words seemed more substantial, powerful, and reassuring. So if it helps you to hear it in this way, like it did me, I invite you to place yourself in that headspace as I read. This is Hebrews 7, 20 through 28. This was confirmed with an oath, for others who became priests took their office without an oath, but this one became a priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word of the Lord. Didn't that scripture sound powerful to you? Imagine that among us in the jury section were the Jewish people, those who had grown up with the law, the former understanding of what it meant to be close to God. 
And then they heard this groundbreaking news that something new and better had come. Jesus came and took their previous notions about the law and priesthood, fulfilled them, redefined them, and presented them again as a new and better way. I wonder how they took this news. From William Barclay's commentary, I was reminded that for the Jewish people, closeness with God meant obedience to the law. At the same time, they knew that they were with sin, and thus had to offer sacrifices to regain closeness. Jesus' death on the cross, however, offers an end of this old way of living and an embrace of closeness with God, despite our sin, and Jesus as the intercessor forever. God is calling us into closeness with himself, not dependent on how we perform, but on what Jesus already did on our behalf, for everyone, forever. The text uses very definitive language. In verse 22, it says that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Because Jesus was made priest through an oath, it is binding, unchangeable, and reliable. We can trust in what God says. Numbers 32 says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If this is the case, in a vow pledged by a person, how much more significant is it when God says it? It's like the ultimate pinky promise. And when God made this oath, he didn't just say, you are a priest, but you are a priest forever. We then know for certain, without a doubt, that Jesus has held, is holding, and will continue to hold this position forever. And because he holds this position forever, we then have access to God through him forever. The author wants to reassure the reader that Jesus truly is better than anyone who had come before him. To do this, he compares Jesus to former high priests multiple times throughout this passage. First, like I've mentioned, in verses 20 and 21, we learn that Jesus was given his position through an oath, when former priests did not. In verses 23 and 24, we are told that the priests would change frequently because they would die. But Jesus is everlasting and thus remains priest forever. Verse 27 says that Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself or for the people like other high priests. He came as the perfect sacrifice once for all when he died on the cross. We no longer have to offer sacrifices because of our sins, but instead are able to come humbly to the Father, sin and all, to receive the great love he has for us. Lastly, verse 28 says that former high priests are subject to weakness, but Jesus is perfect. Jesus is different. He is unlike any priest these people had ever seen before. Any expectation they might have had has been met, fulfilled, overturned, and exceeded. Through him, we have intimacy with the Father. Our sins are washed clean, and we are made whole again. We can humbly come to him with all that we are, broken, sinful, lost, hopeless, and he will meet with us. His grace encapsulates us, sustains us, and his great love is available to everyone. Aaron, Ryan, Meg, and I have all shared our take on this passage with you today. But what is the Lord saying to you as you hear it? Are you certain that Jesus is the true high priest for all of us, for all time? Or are you still sitting in the jury stand, unconvinced?
Are you able to come humbly to the Father who calls us to closeness with himself? Or are you stuck, feeling like you are too broken to receive the love he has for you? Let us take a few moments to pray and draw close to the Lord who is inviting us into his presence. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.